You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, America. This is Pete Necker, your host for a veteran story on AmericasWebRadio.com. This morning, I have a very special veteran story on AmericasWebRadio.com. This morning, I have a very special... I know a little bit about your, your history, Jeff, but I want to go back to Stockton, California in June of 1947. You came kicking and screaming into the world. You went to school locally. You uh, rode your bicycle or walked to school, but then come along uh, high school, and you loved a car that your grandfather gave you. Tell me about that car. Well, you know, every... Every boy at about that uh, age, around the age of 16, when you first get your driver's license, really has only uh, two dreams. One is getting a car, and the other one involves girls. But uh, my first first dream at that time uh, involved uh, the car. And my grandfather had a 1948 Dodge Custom Royal that had set out in Santa Monica, California for many years, and he decided to give it to me, and I completely restored that car, and it was the fastest car in Stockton in uh, 1965, and Then one night, my father came in, God bless him, and said, I need to borrow your car. And I said, Dad, be careful. It's very powerful. And he poo-pooed that and took it out and promptly totaled it. Thank God he he wasn't hurt. But uh, as kind of a, and I'm sorry, he bought me a Ford Falcon (laughs) four-cylinder which was which did nothing but make noise but uh, you know <laughs> I, I did have wheels but uh, that's that's the story of my, my great car <laughs> okay I know after high school you went to the uh, University of California Davis for a while tell us I a did. little bit about your yeah your, a little bit about that first year at the University of California uh, that's a year that I have tried to blot out from my memory because I went to UC, <laughs> I went to UC Davis and uh, was totally unprepared for college, and all I did was enjoy myself and had to leave Davis on probation and uh, came back with my my tail between my legs to uh, to Stockton uh, to a, a junior college to try and redeem my grade point average. And uh, you met a young lady, I believe, at that time. Oh, my goodness. You are really digging, aren't you? Yes, I did. <laughs> yes, I did. And uh, I guess it was the fact that she... And I were, you know, young love is probably the most, uh, the, the, the strongest love. It, it, because it may be your first experience and you really don't know, uh, what this whole new emotion is. And I was head over heels. 
And uh, she left at the end of that year for Colorado. And uh, we had great plans to get together for Thanksgiving. And she called me and said, don't come. I've met someone else. Well, you have have no idea how devastated I was from that. And uh, I drove right over to my uh, recruiting station and said, take me. And uh, (laughs) since I had a pulse at that time, they said, sure, come on down. Uh huh. And uh, they promised you uh, what? They uh, they swore to me that because I enlisted, I would not have to go to Vietnam. Can you believe them? Well, let's just say my eyes have been opened a little bit since then. But uh, <laughs> yes, I I did believe them at the time. <laughs> Okay, Jeff, the Army sent you to uh, Fort Lewis, Washington for basic training. Now, tell us a little bit about your basic training. Uh, Well, you know, Fort Lewis is a beautiful, beautiful military fort, except in December and January, where it is probably (laughs) one of the coldest places on Earth. And I was there in December and January, and it was... It was not a great experience, uh, with one possible exception. At the end of basic training, you're all lined up in formation, and in my case, standing out in the in the rain. And the drill sergeant is reading off MOS designations, and he's going, 11 Bravo, infantry, 11 Bravo, infantry. 11 Bravo Infantry, and then he gets to me and he says, 71 Charlie, what the heck is 71 Charlie? And he looks it up and says, what the heck's a chap's ass? I said, that's (laughs) Chaplin's assistant, and that was me. (laughs) You almost didn't make out a basic. I think that you, uh, you got sick right toward the end, and uh, you had a little trouble with rifle qualification, didn't you? That's, that's very true, Pete. <clears throat> I did get sick, and the uh, <clears throat> the uh, captain or lieutenant, I think he was the captain, came into my hospital room and he said, we're going to have to recycle you because you missed rifle qualification. And I said, sir, I can fire a rifle. And he said, no, you can't. I said, how about if you and I shoot off together, and if I beat you, you don't recycle me? And I left him in the dust, and I actually got the trophy for uh, the highest in the battalion on marksmanship. Oh, wow. Okay, well, you ended up being, uh, uh, and I hate to say the word, but that's okay, the chap's ass, which was Chaplin's assistant. Now, how do you, how do you think uh, you was chosen to become a chaplain's assistant? Well, I know full well how I how I got that designation. I had a uh, a very strong letter of recommendation written for me by my uh, my congregational rabbi in Stockton, and uh, it was on the strength of that that I was given the assignment. All right. Okay. And uh, from basic, you got your assignment to seventy one Charlie. And you went to uh, two forts. The first was Fort Dix, New Jersey. Tell me about that. 
uh, commonly referred to as Fort Dingling, New Jersey. Is that the one you're talking about? <laughs> Fort Dingling, yes, sir. That's the one I'm talking about. Yeah, Fort Dix was was interesting because uh, when I got there, I had not yet heard the mantra, never volunteer for anything. So when uh, we were first uh, rounded up at, at Dix, Someone came in and said, does anyone here know how to type? Well, Goofy here raised his hand. Uh, and at that time, I typed about 80, 88, 90 words a minute. And uh, he said, come with me. And I ended up just being the, uh, the, the clerk typist for one of the base commanders. And so I had a really easy time at Fort Dix. And, uh, you know, then they came by and said, uh, we're all going to, uh, to go to Vietnam orientation, whether you're going to Vietnam. No, no, excuse me, I'm getting that confused with Fort Hamilton. No, at Fort Dix, I just finished my, uh, my training there and then got transferred to Fort Hamilton in Brooklyn, New York. Right, tell me about Fort Hamilton. Fort Hamilton is the, uh, or was then, and I believe still is, the, uh, the chaplains and chaplains assistance uh, training uh, fort, and uh, that was really a, a very very nice experience because it's not very military. Uh, the only, I guess, the only thing of note, and it's a pretty big note that happened there, is towards the end when we were just about to leave Fort Hamilton, I twixt the uh, Department of the Army and found out that my orders were to go to Germany because there was only one chaplain's, one Jewish chaplain's assistant in every other class through Fort Hamilton. And uh, the guy in the class ahead of me filled up the quota in Vietnam. And uh, he was tagged for some kind of kitchen duty and slipped and hurt his back. And so, in the Army's infinite wisdom, they said, Oh, well, here, Feinstein, you go to Vietnam, he'll go to Germany. <laughs> and that's how I ended up in, in Vietnam. <laughs> All right, what a story. Okay, on June 3rd, June 3rd, 1968, what we landed at yeah, Vietnam. The big bird landed at Big uh, Benoit. And you stepped out of an air-conditioned airplane into the heat of Vietnam. Tell me about that day. Uh, a day that, you know, it, it, there, there's two, two designators on that day. One is what Franklin Roosevelt said, a day that will live in infamy. And the second is probably uh, a day that I'd like to forget. But, you know, you step out of a 72-degree air-conditioned Boeing 707 into about 103 degree temperature at about 100% relative humidity, and you actually you can't breathe and you can't move. But they took us by truck to uh, holding barracks in uh, in Benoit, and uh, these these holding barracks were were nothing but long tents over concrete bases open on the sides that had uh, triple-deck bunks in them, and you were 
supposed to stay there until they came through and told you what your assignment was. And I'll relate to you a funny story that happened that night. Uh, we got attacked my first night in country. And uh, the guy that was sleeping on the top of the triple-deck bunk had re-upped. He had been in Vietnam before, and his uh, modus operandi, if you will, was when there were incoming rounds, he never ran for the bunker. He just grabbed the edge of his mattress and flipped over onto the floor with the mattress on top of him for protection. Well, he was the only casualty that night because he grabbed the edge of his mattress and flipped over, forgetting that he was in the third of the three bunks. <laughs> that's, that's, that does not earn a, a person a purple heart. I don't believe. Yeah, I'm not uh, sure he awarded a purple heart. <laughs> All right, Jeff, I've got to interrupt us just a minute. We're going to our first commercial. We'll be uh, right back, ladies and gentlemen, with uh, Rabbi Jeff Feinstein. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, I am Roger B., host of the Locked and Loaded Show on America's Web Radio. Be sure to join us live every Tuesday at 1500 hours for the latest in gun news, gun products, gun politics, and other gun-related stuff. That's Tuesday, 1500 hours, America's Web Radio. My name is Kyle Hayes, a motorsports student at Alfred State College. Every year, Alfred State students compete in the Great Race, which is a cross-country time endurance rally for vintage vehicles. As you can imagine, it's pretty costly. I'm asking for your help. Your donation can make it possible for these students to live their passion and promote the vintage automobile industry. Please visit our site at give.alfredstate.edu and search Great Race to learn more and help us reach our goal. Thank you. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. In my life. Yep. Thank you for listening. My wife. Yep. Pete, can you hear me? Yes, sir. Okay. We're- All right, we're back with uh, Rabbi Jeff Feinstein. Uh, we were we're going to get you out of uh, Benoit. Let's take you to your first assignment on your second day in Vietnam after you went through a, a, an attack your first day, and you went to Long Bend. Tell me about Long Bend. Well, you know, at that time, Long Bend, South Vietnam, was the headquarters for uh, two of the major uh, areas of the U.S. Army. Uh, USERV headquarters was there, United States Army Vietnam was there, 
and the headquarters of the first logistical command was also there, and I was assigned to the staff chaplain's office, the command chaplain's office, at the headquarters of the first logistical command. Now, we're in a, at that time, a third world jungle country, and the headquarters of both USERB and the first logistical command were three-story glass and steel air-conditioned buildings that would not have looked out of place in any American city. <laughs> wow. Uh, I was asked uh, by Veterans War History Org to ask you, uh, name a few of the chaplains that you, you came in contact with and, and a couple of rabbis that you worked for. Well, I actually worked for the second-ranking rabbi in the United States Army, Colonel Jack Ostrovsky. Uh, I'm going to share a little bit of, uh, of, of Jewish theology with you for a second, if you don't mind. Sure. Uh, we are told that there are a group called the Lamed Vavniks. It's a group of, I'm sorry to say this, if there are any ladies listening, a group of men who are responsible for the maintenance of the world. They don't know who each other is, and when one passes, there is someone immediately to take his place. I believe that Rabbi Jack Ostrovsky was one of those individuals. He was wow. he was a an unbelievable individual. Not only was he moral and kind, but to give you an idea of how learned he was, by the time he was, I think, three and a half or four years old, he could recite the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible in Hebrew from memory. Wow. But I was wow. also the, the command chaplain at, uh, at uh, the chaplain's office at that time was a Colonel uh, Lutgen, who was a Catholic priest and a wonderful, wonderful individual. Uh, and we had in and out third uh, chaplains. There were three there uh, at all times. And the third guy... I only remember one, and it was another Catholic priest, a Father Christoph, and I'll tell you a quick story about him in a second. But Colonel Lutkin was replaced by a Colonel Roland, who was a Southern Methodist, and it hurts me to say this because I do not want to classify all Southern Methodists in this way. <laughs> Colonel Roland was the most bigoted individual I have ever had the displeasure of meeting. He hated Catholics, he hated Jews, and he hated blacks, and he made no bones about it. Wow. So it was it was difficult and there were times when Colonel Ostrovsky had to take Colonel Rowland to the mat to get him to uh, tone it down. Wow, yeah, that's yeah. It was it was unfortunate, and I would never I would never have told you this story if Colonel Rowland were still amongst the living. 
but I can share that with you now because he is not. Okay. Now, there were only five Jewish chaplain teams in the entire country. Is that correct? That is correct. And my MOS at this time was changed to 71 Mike from 71 Charlie, and I was then elevated to chaplain's administrator. Okay. Uh, you covered, now most folks will say that you were at Long Bend. You didn't stay in Long Bend. You covered all four corps from the uh, I Corps, up where the Marines were, all the way down to the Mekong Delta, right? That is, that is correct. Uh, Rabbi Ostrovsky and I went, uh, we traveled the entire country, and uh, I used to say to, uh, to Rabbi Ostrovsky, uh, it's uh, you and me, Rabbi, wherever you want to go, it's you and me, until we'd be uh, flying in the chopper, and he'd look down at an LZ that was under fire. And he'd say, I wonder if there are any of our boys down there. Let's go down and check on it. And I'd look at him and say, if you go down there, it's you and God, because I'm not going. <laughs> How often did that happen? <laughs> uh, it only happened, I think, two or three times, and then he realized that if I was with him, we weren't going there. <laughs> okay. Uh... There, there was an unwritten law in Vietnam that if you were the chaplain's assistant or uh, chaplain's administrator, uh, if your chaplain was killed, you had better be killed with him. Wow. Uh, were you allowed to carry weapons? I was. He was not. Did he? I'm sorry? Did he carry weapons? You no, know, he was not allowed to carry weapons. Okay, all right. And he did not. Right. We, we did, however, have one rabbi in country who was also airborne and a ranger. And he carried a huh. 45 and an M16. <laughs> and and well. Rabbi Ostrovsky said to him several times, if you're armed, you're a target. He said, we're all targets. And it didn't bother him. Wow. So you, are you, maybe you were like your chaplain's bodyguard in a way? Uh, that, was, that was your primary uh, reason for being there. Uh, but it didn't happen all that often. Uh, in my case, as I said, two or three times only. Uh, but, uh, you know, our, our primary responsibility, not our primary mission, but our primary responsibility was to uh, assist with uh, the conducting of services, assist with counseling, and, of course, then be the uh, general secretary, if you will, to the chaplain. Yeah. Okay, very good. I know we lost at least one rabbi in Vietnam, Rabbi Morton Singer, I believe. Yes, um, yes. Uh, that was a great loss. He was a, uh, a wonderful, wonderful individual. 32 years old, I believe. Well, you know, at that time, 32 years old was ancient to me. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Uh, how, was, how old? Yeah, how I, was old only, I was only 21. Okay. Right. Well, you were an old man. Uh, well, you know, to some of the people, I was an old man. That's correct. <laughs>
it's interesting that I could land in country 18 days before my 21st birthday and I could get shot, but I couldn't buy a drink. <laughs> I've heard that a lot. Uh, you had um, what you can say one of your worst experiences was when you had to counsel some prisoners at the Long Bend uh, Jail. Yep. Um, they didn't just stand for Lyndon Baines Johnson. It was the Long <laughs> Jail. And, uh, yeah, I, I remember vividly counseling one individual at the LBJ who was incarcerated on charges of killing his company commander. And uh, I looked at him and I said, did you do it? And he said, I can't answer that. And I said, whatever you say is privileged. It'll never go any further. He said, yeah, I did it. He was going to get us all killed. But they'll never pin it on me because there were rounds coming from everywhere. Who knows what hit him? And he got off scot-free. Wow. Wow. Uh, that, that probably gave you a different perspective about what was going on in Vietnam. Well, I don't know. Do we have enough time for me to tell you a little bit about my perspective on Vietnam? Uh, we got about three minutes before our next break. Sure, go ahead. All right. Well, if you want to interrupt me, I can pick it up after that. Okay. You know, we all have events in our lives that are milestone events, like virtually everyone that you're and my age, Pete, remembers exactly where we were and what we were doing when John Kennedy was assassinated. But there are five events that have occurred in this country that have irrevocably changed our country. Number one on my list is the uh, implementation and ratification of our Constitution. It set us up as a government unlike any other on Earth. The second is probably the Civil War, because it, again, showed that we are a nation that cannot be divided and we must all pull together. The third on my list is the building of the Transcontinental Railroad. It allowed us to expand and fill this country and, to use a trite phrase, fill our manifest destiny. The fourth, perhaps, is the Great Depression because it brought everyone back down to an equal starting point to build up from there. And the fifth on my list is Vietnam, because it changed the view of everyone in America, whether you were for the war or against the war, a participant or a conscientious objector, that it was now permissible to challenge our government. Vietnam, Vietnam had an irrevocable, irrevocable and lasting impression on me and on our country forevermore. Very well put, sir. Very well put. Uh, Jeff, we are going to our next uh, commercial. We'll be back in a couple minutes. Folks, stay with us for this very, very interesting interview. 
Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Hey folks, this is Victor Armanderas with the On Point with Victor show. Just to remind you, don't miss every Tuesday 2 to 3 live right here on America's Web Radio. And remember, I'm not angry, I'm just right. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, we are back with uh, Vietnam veteran Rabbi Jeff Weinstein. Jeff, uh, this is a delicate subject here, but I want you to tell the folks about it. They need to know. Tell me about the time that you went to Da Nang to visit the mortuary. Oh, wow. That's, uh, that was one of the worst experiences in my entire life. The Da Nang Mortuary was an area where it was required to visit to identify certain individuals. There were rows and rows of cadavers, of dead soldiers, and it was, it fell upon me to go through there and identify Jewish casualties. Uh, and while most uh, most Jews in the U.S. military at that time occupied positions in the uh, judge advocate's office or the medical corps or something like that, there were a significant number of uh, Jewish combatants. And uh, walking through a building that's the size of an airplane hangar and not hearing a sound leaves a very deep impression on you. And it was something that I hope and pray I never have to do again. And I hope and pray nobody ever has to do that again. It was a very unsettling experience and one that I still visit sometimes in uh, evenings and nights when I cannot sleep. It is not PTSD. It is just a very vivid memory that I sometimes recall. 
Yes, sir, Jeff. I think we all have those uh, memories. Uh, now, tell me about something a little bit uh, more pleasant. The Passover you did at the name. That was the highlight of, well, the highlight and maybe the low light of my my trip to Danang. Uh, Passover to me is, you know, we, we look at Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and we call them the High Holy Days. But Passover really is the defining holiday of our religion, as it is the holiday that led us to freedom out of Egypt and gave us God's Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai and set us free. Uh, so it's a very important celebration, and it is celebrated by what we call a Seder, a dinner. And we invited, we put out an invitation to every CO in the country that please let any Jews in their contingent attend the dinner that we were having in Danang. And then Rabbi Ostrowski said to me two words. He said, arrange it. And I went, huh? I contacted the Jewish Welfare Board in New York, and they miraculously arranged to have a plane fly in from New York completely loaded with all of the food, all of the fixings for the dinner, the wine, everything. And we had about 560 GIs at a Passover Seder in Da Nang, and I'm not sure if there's ever been another one, and it was a most glorious evening. It was unbelievable. The food arrived. It, it arrived about two hours before dinner, and it was all there and ready to go when we were ready for it. It was wonderful. That, uh, yes, uh, I think I think uh, you're getting to uh, the rabbi want to take a swim, right, on the beach? That's where I was going next. That was one of the folks. Uh, before the Seder dinner in the morning, we, Rabbi Ostrovsky and I, really had nothing to do. And he said, well, I'd like to go for a swim in the South China Sea. And I said, okay, let's go. Well, I don't like to swim in the ocean, so I just kind of sat on, on the beach and watched him. And all of a sudden, I looked at him, and I see that he is being pulled out to sea by a riptide, probably at the speed of a brisk walk. And he is floundering. He can't, he can't even keep his head above water. Well, I have some, had some training as a lifeguard, and I ran. And there were lifeguards on the, south, on the, on the beach there. And uh, I beat two of them to uh, Rabbi Ostrovsky, and I pulled him back into shore and... Uh, as a result of that, uh, he did not want the incident publicized because he knew if it was written up in the Stars and Stripes, his wife would find out, and he did not want that to happen. So I ended up getting a promotion and a bronze star for Valor for that. So I said, stop. <laughs> That's a pretty good trade. <laughs> yeah, I thought, it was, I thought it was equitable. 
There you go. I want you to explain uh, one night at Long Ben, you on guard duty, and uh, tell me about what happened that night, Jeff. Oh, goodness. Boy, you are dragging up all of this, aren't you, Pete? All right. Long Ben at that time was the largest military installation in the world. It was so large, there was an airport in the middle of it. Uh, there were, I, I don't even know how many, how of GS Long Ben. Uh, but there was a bunker that was about four by six or four and a half by seven dug into the ground every 50 meters around the base, around the post, about, around Long Bend Post. And uh, at the corners of these bunkers were four by four posts holding up a roof that was just planks and sandbags on top of it with a firing position out the front of the uh, of the bunker. And uh, it was your duty when you went on guard duty to check the Claymore mine that was situated by the barbed wire perimeter in front of the bunkers before you retreated into the bunker at night. And that night we got hit with a ground attack and the, the four guys in the bunker to our immediate right had not checked their Claymore mine. And when the ground assault started, they triggered off their Claymore and the VC had turned it around and it just took out all of the barbed wire. And so it just opened up Broadway for them and they just came running in. And about at the same time, one of the uh, rockets or mortar or whatever it was hit next to the bunker that I was in, buried and detonated, and it blew out the four corner posts on our bunker, essentially sealing us in a crypt. We couldn't get out, but thank God they couldn't get in. And in the morning, uh, the guys on both sides of us, unfortunately, did not survive. But they dug us out, and we were all fine until you looked into the bunker and you saw... Now, remember, this is about a four-by-six or a four-and-a-half-by-seven-foot space with four guys in it. There were shrapnel holes coming through the side of the bunker where the rocket detonated, and shrapnel holes going out the other side of the bunker, and not one of us had a scratch. I don't well, think that's possible, but it was there. I well, think from that, from that moment on, I knew there was something else in my life. I would think so, Jeff. Wow, what a story. What a story. All right, you, uh, <clears throat> there's another story I want you to tell the listeners. Uh, you were, I think, at the uh, Jan Kipper uh, <laughs> celebration, and you were uh, blowing on a, what, what do you, how do you pronounce this? A, uh, it's a shofar. It's a ram's shofar. horn. Shofar. Yeah, a ram's horn. Tell, us, tell me about the shofar. Well, 
You know, as I said, Yom Kippur is one of the high holy days. It is a day of atonement and a day marked by complete fasting for 25 hours. And the fast in Judaism is a complete fast. No water, no food, nothing. And Rabbi Ostrovsky and I conducted services from sunup till sundown. Uh, he would uh, lead and read some of the Hebrew, and I would translate, and I would do it, and he would translate, and we went back and forth all day long. The culminating moment of Yom Kippur is at the very end of the service. It is marked by a long, loud blast on the shofar called Tekiah Gadolah, the Great Blast. And it fell to me to blow the shofar. Now, first of all, the shofar is a very difficult instrument to even make a sound out of, but I knew how to do it, and that was fine. And at the end of the service, Rabbi Ostrovsky looked at me and he said, Tekiah Gadolah. And I put the shofar to my mouth, and my mouth felt like I had been chewing on sand. There was no saliva. There was no moisture of any kind. And I put the shofar to my lips, and nothing came out. Not a, <laughs> not a peep. And I looked into the congregation, and there were about 200 guys sitting there, so there are 400 eyes on me, and they knew they can't leave until the shofar is sounded. And I said, oh, God, they're going to kill me. I tried again, and the third time I got a little beep, and that was enough. And everyone kind of sighed a sigh of relief and left. Uh, so <laughs> that was a rather interesting experience. <laughs> uh, that, I guess that was one of the pleasant memories uh, that you have in Vietnam. Uh, you know, you, uh, they say that you don't, you don't remember the bad. Hopefully, you only remember the good. And I do have a lot of fond memories of people and things that happened in Vietnam. Of course, I can recall the bad times, but I'd much rather recall the good times. Yes, sir. I, th I think that's the way we all feel about our service in Vietnam. I know uh, you're a member of the Atlanta Vietnam Veterans Business Association. So am I. And when we get together, it's not all doom and gloom. We got about 100 people in the meeting, and we, we laugh and cut up and remember the good times. Absolutely. We all are comrades. We all are brothers in arms, and we all have a shared consciousness, and that makes for a wonderful band of brothers, if you'll pardon the, uh, the use of that term. Oh, and you're right on target, Jeff. We're going to our last commercial break. Uh, we'll be back in just a minute, folks. Uh, stand by um, and join us again with the uh, Rabbi Jeff Feinstein. McAllister's Auto Transport is a privately held company celebrating our 75th anniversary this November, specializing in enclosed-only transportation to the OEM, personal snowbird market, and our favorite market of all is the collector market. Give us a call at 800 748-3160 or you can reach us on the web at mccollisters.com and that's M-C-C-O-L-L-I-S-T-E-R-S dot com 
large enough to handle all of your transportation needs, small enough to provide you the old town, old school service that you come to expect when you're moving your baby. Hey folks, this is Victor Armendariz with the On Point with Victor show. You ever find yourself wondering if you're getting the truth or can you find the truth? Well, don't fear. Tune in every Tuesday, 2 to 3, right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show, where I won't sugarcoat a thing. I'm going to tell you how it is. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Okay, I'm going to come in for just a second and remind everybody that in Georgia we have the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And the induction ceremony is in November, uh, November the 7th. However, this year, because of the COVID-19, uh, it has been postponed. And as soon as we have a date for it, we will be announcing the date. It will still be in Columbus, Georgia. And uh, if you haven't visited the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame, I encourage you to do so. It And um, it, it's not only informative, but it's just very inspiring. And certainly we always say if you've got a young man or young woman that's graduating from high school or college, they haven't made up their mind which way they want to go or what they want to do exactly, Encourage them to check out a branch of the military, be it Army, Navy, Marines, Coast Guard, whatever it happens to be, Air Force. Be sure and have them check it out because the military has a place for them. No matter what their interest is, the military has a place for them. And we certainly encourage that. And uh, Pete, want to thank you for a, a great guest. And Rabbi, we appreciate you coming on America's Web Radio. So with that being said, I'm going to turn it back to Pete. All right, David, thank you very much. Uh, Jeff, uh, thank you for your service to our country in Vietnam. Uh, thank you, my brother. But I also want to know that when you came back from Vietnam, uh, you went to work for a really large paper company. And uh, you were, I think, in New Jersey or something like that, going to New Jersey. And you were picked up by a very large limousine. Uh, tell me about that day. Interesting day. I was uh, doing some training for one of uh uh, or presentation to one of our satellite uh, companies, and I got picked up at Newark Airport in a stretch limo that I think was about a half a city block long. I'd never seen a car that size. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they immediately put me in the back, and I rode to do my presentation. And getting back in to go back to the airport, I said, I'm not sitting all the way back there. So I got in the front with the driver, and on the way back to the airport, we, of course, started a conversation. And uh, he looked about the same age as, as I was. And I said, uh, were you in the service? He said, yeah. I said, did you serve in Nam? And he said, yes. I said, when were you there? He said, 68 and 9. I said, so was I. I said, where were you? He said, Long Bend. I said, so was I. I said, what did you do? He said, I'm a chopper pilot. I said, well, who did you fly for? He said, 
I flew for the first logistical command chaplain's office. <laughs> I looked at him. It was my chopper pilot. I hadn't seen him in years and years, and I don't think I had ever spoken to him. And we didn't go right back to the airport. We, we stopped at a pub and shared, shared, shared a few beers before we went to the airport. Uh, just an incredible, incredible experience to run into someone that you never in your life thought you would ever see again. That, that's fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Jeff, you uh, diabetes got a hold of you when you were in Vietnam, and you ended up uh, at the uh, Letterman Army Hospital for about two months. Uh, Correct. Yeah, and you received a medical discharge. So tell me a little bit about yourself after uh, you got out of the hospital and once again became a citizen. Well, you know, Agent Orange is one of the most devastating things that ever happened to any GI anywhere. And the worst part about it is they covered it up. So yes, I became a diabetic while I was in Vietnam. As a matter of fact, uh, as a little side note there, I went from 232 pounds to 164 pounds in five weeks. That'll tell you when my diabetes onset. And wow. uh, I have, uh, when I checked into Letterman General Hospital, they were gonna put me in a ward and I don't think I've told this story to anyone. I heard a voice behind me say, uh, no, put him up on the 11th floor. <laughs> there was an endocrinologist. I think his name was Stephen Globerman. I'm not sure what his name was. Anyway, nice Jewish doctor there. He said he recognized who I was, and uh, he, he put me up on the general's uh, floor. I had a magnificent <laughs> presidio and the Golden Gate Bridge, and it was uh, not a bad place to be for a while. <laughs> oh, that's that's interesting. And uh, you were in business for a while, but then you decided you got tired of chasing the all money dollar, and you decided to go to uh, seminary. Is that correct? That is that is correct. You know, I, I can't really fault my life before going to seminary because uh, obviously I raised two wonderful children. I provided for my family. We had a nice lifestyle. Problem is it wasn't fulfilling for me at all. And um, so I decided that we need to make a 180 degree change. And I have never looked back. I am delighted that I chose this career path. I think a lot of people are grateful that you did. Now, getting into your final thoughts, I want you, I'm going to read you something from the story I wrote about you. Uh, when you came home from Vietnam, you said, for the first time, I realized we can challenge our own government and that we have never been the same since. You said, when I went to Vietnam, I was a little bit to the left of Jesus Christ. Then when I came home, a little bit to the right of a the hunt. Tell me about that, Jeff. Well, you know, there are a number of uh, things you can say about the, the two divisions in this country, liberal and conservative. Uh, one, 
I guess one of them is, what is a conservative? It's a liberal that got a job. I'm sorry if I'm getting political. <laughs> I shouldn't. But, you know, it, it opens your eyes to the way things really are rather than the way things people tell you they are. There is nothing that, uh, that changes your mind faster than seeing it for yourself. And uh, seeing the forces at play in Vietnam and seeing what had happened to my country while I was gone for a year uh, cemented my place uh, pretty far right. All right. Okay. Um, well, I, I'm pretty sure that uh, Vietnam helped make you the man that you are today. I don't uh, think. I, know it, I don't think anyone who went to Vietnam was not completely changed by the experience. Well, I think you're right, uh, Jeff. Uh, you you were only in the military for uh, a year and nine months. You had obtained the rank of E6. How'd you get E6 in such a short time? Well, when I got to Vietnam, I was uh, immediately put into an E4 slot, so I had that rank. Uh, I was elevated to E5 uh, about six months through uh, my service, uh, through, through merit. And uh, then when I saved uh, Colonel Roland's life, uh, not Roland, excuse me, oh, that was a terrible slip. When I <laughs> saved Rabbi Ostrovsky's life, I got the, uh, the uh, promotion to E6. Okay, all right. You know, we, we do tend to forget the bad and focus on the fond memories. Uh, what is your fondest memory of Vietnam? Well... At the risk of sounding flippant, it would be coming home. But uh, I guess my, my fondest memory of Vietnam is not just one memory. It's a collective memory of all the wonderful people I met and served with while I was there. Uh, I met some outstanding individuals and uh they, they helped me get through that terrible year. Without them, I don't know that I would have made it. So, you know, there are things that you remember. One of my worst memories is going back to Vietnam a couple of years ago. It was terrible. Really? There is an individual, as, as a writer, you know who Herman Wook is. Oh, Absolutely. Herman Wook said, it's the winners that write the history. Well, the Vietnamese won that war, and they have completely rewritten history. I should never have returned. Really? You want to tell us a little bit about it? Well, I went everywhere from Hanoi down to, and I will never call it Ho Chi Minh City, it's still Saigon. But in Hanoi, of course, everyone has to go to the infamous Hanoi Hilton. The only thing they say at that facility now is how badly the Vietnamese prisoners were treated by the French. There is no mention that it was a U.S. prison. Wow. 
And that was, you know, you look at that and you go, huh? I was here. That didn't happen. Well, that's the way the world is going to think it happened. And that's too bad. I do not care at all for revisionist history. Amen. Amen. I, I agree with you. Uh, now, let me ask you this. They, I, I've talked to guys who went back to Vietnam, and they said the North is pretty much like the North, but down in the South, especially in Ho Chi Minh City or Saigon, which I prefer, that it's, uh, what do you want to say, a little bit more liberal? It's not quite as communist as the North is? Is that correct? Well, no, that is absolutely correct, and it is it is made to be that way because they need the influx of trade from the Western nations, and if they changed Saigon into the same city that Hanoi is, they would lose those, that trade. So yes, Saigon is, is much more open, much more Western, if you will, uh, than, than Hanoi ever will be. Wow. Wow. You went uh, all the way from the DMZ to the Mekong Delta, all four cores in Vietnam. I have been amazed to interview some guys that were like the uh, Marines in I Corps. They had no idea that there was a two core, three core, and four core. They were just centered on uh, their own little area, their own platoon, their own squad. They didn't well, they, hoot in hell. They needed to be for self preservation. They could not. They, could, they had to be uh, needlepoint-focused. I, I fully understand that. Yeah. You were, you were very uh, fortunate that you got to see all four cores. Uh, it, I did. I did, and we were lucky. We were lucky to know all four. It was, you know, it, uh, it was like four different countries. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was, you can even include a fifth country in there when you get to the Central Islands. Absolutely. And without war, Vietnam is a very beautiful country. Oh, it absolutely is. And it hasn't lost any of that beauty. It is still physically beautiful. Time, Pete. You know, the whole earth is physically beautiful, Pete. And, yeah. you know, God, God in his infinite wisdom, or her infinite wisdom, created a place for humankind to exist in peace and beauty. Now, shalom, shalom. Uh, yeah. Jeff, we're coming to the end of the program. just want to ask you one question. Time. And yes or no is fine with me. Would you do it again? Would I do what? This interview or go back to Vietnam? Go, no, would you do Vietnam again? I, I don't Time, think I Pete. can answer that, Pete. You know, at this okay. stage of life, I would have to say no. Okay, all right. But, yeah, Jeff, we're at, the end. Yeah, we're at the end of the program. Sorry to cut you off. Great interview. Join us next week, folks. Thank you very much. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.